So in the short term, uh, we're going to be taking steps to encourage business to create jobs that will continue to be my top priority. Hello and welcome to NPR's Planet Money. I'm Alex Bloomberg. And I'm Hannah Jaffe-Walt. Today is Friday, February 19th, and that was President Obama. You heard at the top of the podcast, he was speaking this morning in Nevada about the need for jobs in our economy. So, Hannah, today on the podcast, justice is served, a wrong <laughs> is righted, revenge is exacted. And we get to the heart of a question, why is a corporation considered a person in the eyes of the law? And all of that has to do with today's Planet Money indicator, 400. 400. That is the amazing number of radio shows that one of Planet Money's radio parents, This American Life, also the program that you work for as well as Planet Money. Alex, This American Life has completed 400 shows since it first went on the air in December 1995. Right. And that 400th show, it was a big milestone for us at This American Life. And to celebrate the occasion, we were doing this special show, this special 400th episode, which we called Stories Pitched by Our Parents. And we're going to get to the idea of revenge and corporate personhood in one second. So I'm just going to have to give you this little setup. So the idea of the stories pitched by our parents' show is that in the 15 years we've been doing the show This American Life, all of the producers who work on the show are constantly having family members coming up to them and telling them, hey, I have a great idea for your show. And so we thought that for this 400th show, instead of deflecting or ignoring our family's pitches the way we normally do, we would embrace them and actually try to do the stories they pitched us. Man, which I have to say, I can understand how hard that challenge would be. And as if that was not hard enough, you guys actually took a page from the Planet Money playbook and turned it into a radio competition, This American Idol, a la <laughs> our fancy food show, and the mall convention shows where we competed against one another to get the very best story in one hour at those places. So you all set out to do the stories that your parents had pitched you in a competition style. And Ira Glass, host of This American Life, started the show by explaining how it would all work. <laughs> So we're gathered here, not in our studio, which actually isn't big enough for all of us to fit, but in our office, in the uh, room where we have our weekly story meetings. So it's nine of us sitting here at microphones uh, and looking around the room. It's Robin Semyon. Hi. So just the setup here, we were all sitting in in a circle while we were recording the show. We were all sitting in a circle in our little little meeting room at This American Life, and each person's story was queued up and ready to play over the speakers set up in the room. And Ira explains how it's going to go. The ground rules are these. We're going to play each producer's story. We'll all listen together. And then at the end of the show, we're going to come back on the air together and decide which story was best. All right. So that was set up. Um, And then we started listening to the stories. And the story ideas that our parents pitched were tough. (laughs) Lisa Pollock's parents pitched her a story where she was supposed to find funny things that happened at funerals. (laughs) Nancy Updike's dad wanted her to do a story about the Erie Canal. Right. That was it. Just the Erie the Canal. The Erie Canal. Right. <laughs> Ira's dad thought he should do a story on the radio about how that one time he left his suit on the train, but then he got it back just in time to attend the opera <laughs> that night. <laughs> okay. So, yeah. So the show's going on. Everybody's sitting around this table, and we're listening. I was listening to all of these stories. 
And then at the end, you discuss them a little bit and you move on to the next one. Just like our competitions, you have a sort of panel of people talking about how good the stories were. That was the hour of This American Life. Right. That was show number 400. Right. And then, Alex, you might remember this, they get to your story. And that is where the controversy happened. So we're going to pick up the show here. And the staff has just finished listening to Nancy Updike's story. And now they're moving on to yours, Alex. And we should say at this point... You, Alex, you'd come back to Planet Money for a big meeting we were having, so you weren't even at This American Life by the time Ira introduced your story and it started playing. All right, well, our next story is from Alex Bloomberg. My dad doesn't watch much TV. He hates sports. He's an atheist. His main pastime is reading, books on Buddhism, philosophy. He loves William Blake and science books and left-leaning blogs. And his story ideas, they're generally big and abstract. For example, when I called him for this project the other night, one idea he thought I should do a story about was the idea of coming out of the closet. This idea has been so key, he said, in advancing the cause of gay rights, and he wanted me to do a story about how other groups should adopt the tactics of coming out in order to seek mainstream acceptance. What other groups? Atheists, also people who don't like sports. His other idea, at least initially, seemed equally as unpromising. The fact that law treats corporations as if they were people... He'd been thinking about the idea of corporate personhood for years, but it was especially on his mind during the conversation I had with him, which took place just a couple of days after that Supreme Court decision overturning large parts of campaign finance law. That decision, the Citizens United case, basically said there is no distinction between a corporation spending a lot of money on campaign ads and a regular person doing it. In the eyes of the law, the corporation can buy as many ads as it wants. To my dad, that seems crazy and dangerous. We've kind of created these these Goliaths, these Godzillas parading around as if they were people. But in fact, they have a kind of power that no individual person could ever begin to amass. Right. So there is this entity called Exxon Corporation. Uh And you read newspaper stories about... Exxon says, or Exxon was furious. You've never read a sentence that said Exxon was furious, have you? Well, Exxon, Exxon was upset. So, uh, so who, who should I talk to, though? Well, that's that's. I think that's the story idea. Is who do you talk to? Who becomes the voice of Exxon? So the idea would be I would I would call I would try to it would be in search of Exxon. In search of Exxon. Who who, who is this? We treat them as a we treat them as a person and and who do they think they are? <laughs> <laughs> who do you think you are? <laughs> All right. I I will try to do that. I'll try to find out who Exxon thinks they are. I'm not gonna lie, this didn't go well. I called Exxon and spoke to a media relations person there, told her about how my dad and I had this conversation, and I wanted to find out who Exxon thought it was. The lady was very nice, but she said she didn't see any reason Exxon would ever want to talk to me about this. In this way, Exxon is just like a lot of people. If they don't want to talk to the media, you can't really make them. I called around to other multinational corporations, same answer. Then I tried the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, the trade group for most of American business. The guy there was a little bit more receptive, and he called me back with a name. Eugene Volokh. He's the guy you should talk to. Although when I reached Eugene Volokh, he couldn't explain why the Chamber of Commerce sent me to him. You know, uh, 
I am not sure. Um, <laughs> I, I think I think somebody in the Chamber of Commerce reads my blog. So Eugene Volokh turns out not to be a spokesman for corporate America in any way. He's a charming libertarian-leaning law professor at UCLA. He runs a popular blog called the Volokh Conspiracy, though he's written a lot about constitutional issues in the Citizens United case. And the more we talked, the more I had to let go of my Michael Moore dreams, asking stunty questions designed to expose the fallacy of corporate personhood, such as, what's Exxon's favorite color? Or what does Exxon want for Christmas? Or who's Exxon's favorite beetle? That line of questioning, Eugene Volokh told me in so many words, is stupid. Corporations are generally seen as having many constitutional rights, but it's not because somehow they're metaphysically persons. It's because restricting corporations in various ways restricts the rights of persons. It restricts uh, the rights of their owners, and it restricts uh, perhaps the rights of others. Others being, for example, people who want to hear what the corporation has to say. All right, I'm just going to stop here and say, by the time I got to this point in my conversation with Eugene Volokh, I already knew that the story my dad wanted me to do was in trouble. So, Dad, if you don't mind, I took up a different question. And the question I took up is this. How worried should he be about the Citizens United case? <sighs> okay. A little background on the idea of corporations as people. When it comes to property rights, corporations are basically the same as you and I. The government can't take away their property without due process. That's protected under the 14th Amendment. But when it comes to something like the Fifth Amendment, which says you can't be forced to incriminate yourself in a court of law, corporations are not covered. All those TV dramas and congressional hearings where people plead the Fifth, Exxon can't do that. So, corporations are legally like people in some respects and unlike them in others. And it's in this context that the issue of corporate spending on campaigns comes up. The Supreme Court has dealt with this issue a handful of times over the last century. Okay, stop, stop the tape. Stop right. the tape. Okay, okay. I'm just going to point out what's going on here. Paul, our engineer, with all due respect, briefly fell asleep. <laughs> Alex, meanwhile, um, had to leave to go to a meeting for his other – he works on Planet Money and they had a big meeting, so he's not even here to defend himself. <laughs> I, I, I just – I stopped um, – yeah, I went somewhere else. Well, I know, no, and we did an edit on it the other day and I said in this section, like, I didn't follow it at all. And then Iris said that that was because – you said it was because we were girls. <laughs> <laughs> That was a joke. <laughs> Alex, um, I'm going to make a bet here that Ira's gotten a few emails. Not both about the injustice of cutting off your story, but also about making that joke. You know what I think you should have done? What? I think you should have done a story about how people who don't like sports have really co-opted the idea <laughs> of coming out of the closet. <laughs> then you could have, you know, that would have been a really short, straight story. So I just picked Very the wrong direct. idea for my dad, huh? <laughs> Did you play it for your dad, this story? Uh, I, I think he heard it. I think they were. I haven't talked to them actually since it aired on the on the weekend. But um, I think he heard the show. Was he sad? I don't know. Really, you don't know? I don't know. You uh, I, I mean, I got an email from my mom, and she seemed like um, a little bit like her feelings were hurt. <laughs> and that's why I emailed her back, and I told her not to worry. I think you should call your dad right now. We should see how he's doing. Uh, yeah, yeah. Okay. All right. Yeah, yeah. Let me just see if he's home anyway. Hello. Hey, Mom. Alex. How are you? Uh, I'm fine. How are you? Uh, is Dad there? We wanted to interview him for the for the podcast as well. Okay. Yeah. Yes. All right. Hello. Hey. Hello. 
I, Alex, I want to tell you. Yeah. It, it's very, it's very hard to understand how the group of parents that you interviewed produced the talent that you guys <laughs> represent. <laughs> those were, those were uniformly bad ideas. I, no, I don't think that's not true. I've, I got this. E- Mom sent me the email, and I felt you 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 shouldn't don't feel bad. <laughs> well, at least at least their children were able to turn it into a story that people didn't turn off. <laughs> Yes, uh, we are. We are actually doing that right now. Oh, good. Uh, Hannah Jaffe Walt is here. Uh, also, we're we're doing the podcast together. Hello. Hello, oh. Hannah. How are you? Good. How are you? Good. Did you hear the story when it was airing on This American Life? I did hear it. And were you shocked yes. when they stopped it? Uh, I, I didn't realize that they stopped it. I thought that you just gave up in despair. Oh. <laughs> yeah, I I. I was surprised at the vehemence of the rejection of the of the story, <laughs> but I also was surprised that you had pursued who you were talking to more vigorously. But I guess that's what got cut off. You know, Alex Alex nailed it in his intro to this story. You know, I'm a guy who doesn't watch television who doesn't listen to the radio, even to his son very often. <laughs> really? Okay. You don't listen yeah, to it? I catch it occasionally, but I don't listen to it faithfully. I read. I read exactly what Alex said I read. <laughs> <laughs> well, we are putting out a full show of Alex's full story on today's podcast, but you won't Wonder. hear it because you don't listen to it. But we're, oh, it. we're putting it. it out anyway. <laughs> Thank you so much for your time. You're very welcome. <laughs> All right. Bye. 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 I love you both. So, so I was listening to the show, and I have to say, you, I, your dad, you and your dad had this conversation. It was this cute little moment. You go on a mission, and right at the the minute that Ira cuts it off, I was actually getting really into it. Like, I, I loved that you had sort of acknowledged that you probably couldn't make your dad's, you know, mission dream come true, but that you were going to pursue this other path. And I felt like the path that you were going to pursue is actually still in line with him, his big concept story. You were going to pursue this big idea and you were getting into, you know, like corporations of property rights, but they can't plead the fit. That was like right at that moment. I was like, oh, that's sort of interesting. You're going to learn about this character of the corporation. And I wanted to hear what happens next. And so apparently did a lot of our listeners because we've been getting emails and Facebook messages and tweets, as your dad would know, all week, asking us to play the story in its entirety. So we have heard your voices. And without further ado, the rest of Alex's story. And just just to remind us where we are, you've just gotten to the point where we're starting to get to know the story's central character, the corporation. And Alex, you're telling us a little history of his personhood. 
So corporations are legally like people in some respects and unlike them in others. And it's in this context that the issue of corporate spending on campaigns comes up. The Supreme Court has dealt with this issue a handful of times over the last century. Early on, it ruled that corporations, like individuals, are restricted in how much they can contribute directly to a candidate for office. But later on, the Supreme Court passed a series of rulings that upheld the notion that corporations and unions are different from individuals when it comes to stuff like buying TV ads. If I'm a billionaire and I want to take out a series of ads for Barack Obama or Sarah Palin, there is nothing in the law to restrict me. My right to speak and to pay to have my message broadcast is protected by the First Amendment. But the Supreme Court ruled corporations and unions don't have the same rights. The idea being the amount of money these organizations have to spend is so large they could effectively drown out all other points of view. Those rulings remained in effect for over three decades until the Citizens United case overturned them. And the reasoning for the reversal goes something like this. Corporations at their root are organizations of people who've banded together for some purpose. And just because the purpose is mostly to make money doesn't mean that the people who make up the corporations lose their rights of free expression. People band together all the time in all sorts of ways, environmental groups, labor unions, religious organizations, and often they band together for the express purpose of pooling their capital and amplifying their message. I may not be able to afford my own ad on television voicing my opposition to handgun restrictions, but if I band together with other like-minded people to form the NRA then I can. If it's all right for the NRA or the Sierra Club to use its amassed wealth to share the views of its members, the reasoning goes it should be okay for the members of Exxon to do so as well. Here's Tim Sandifer for the Pacific Legal Foundation, which wrote an amicus brief in support of the Supreme Court's decision in the Citizens United case. If you believe that the Lutheran Church should be allowed to express itself on something, or if you believe that the Sierra Club should be allowed to express itself on something, you're saying exactly the same thing, which is people should be allowed to express themselves. But I I just feel like there's such a huge difference between the Lutheran Church and, you know, ExxonMobil. I bet you the Lutheran Church is bigger than ExxonMobil. I know the Catholic Church is. And far more politically influential. (laughs) So why not restrict the rights of the Catholic Church? The answer is because the First Amendment prohibits it, right? Right. And the First Amendment prohibits it when it comes to Exxon also. The great irony of the conservatives' argument in this case is that they have turned the First Amendment into democracy's foe. After several days spent talking to people on both sides of this issue, I realized that each side looks at the other as naive, just about different things. That was law professor Bert Newborn, an expert on the notion of corporate personhood at New York University. He filed a brief for the other side in the Citizens United case, opposing Tim Sandifer. Sandifer believes that liberals are naive about government. They always think it's going to be wiser and more virtuous than it is in reality. Bert Newburn thinks conservatives are naive about corporations. They don't consider them as dangerous and coercive as they actually are. We're living in a world now where in every single state house in the country, the following conversation is going on. It's a young kid, an earnest young kid, hired by the lobbyists, wearing Gucci loafers and a blazer. And the kid is saying to some grizzled politician, look, I feel terrible about this, but I can't control my boss on this issue. He's crazy. On this issue, if you don't go with us, I don't know what he's going to do. Uh, And that's going on now in every single statehouse. And if you don't think that's going to change the nature of American politics, politicians looking at a wall of money that can fall on them now um, because the Supreme Court has given a cultural and legal green light, uh, then I I think you just don't understand human nature. 
Uh, I should say that uh, the effect of the um, decision is likely to be uh, uh, neither as grave nor as wonderful as, as various people have said. We return now to Eugene Volokh, unofficial spokesman for corporate America. He says that when it comes to the particulars of the Citizens United decision, there is some data on what the effect is likely to be. Roughly half the states already live in the world created by Citizens United. In other words, half the states make no restrictions on what corporations or labor unions can spend on campaign ads for candidates for state office. So, says Eugene Volokh, We had a natural sort of experiment. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and if you look at it, actually, uh, if you look at Governing Magazine, it puts out a grading the state's report card. Mm-hmm. Uh, you look at the three states that, that just barely got an A, A minuses, Washington State, Utah, Virginia. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were among the states uh, that uh, did not restrict corporate or union spending. In other words, the three states that got the highest grades from Governing Magazine all allowed unlimited corporate spending in state elections. That governing magazine report, by the way, was done in collaboration with the Pew Center on the States, a nonpartisan think tank. And finally, there's this. California, a state that also doesn't restrict corporate or union expenditures, recently released a report examining how much of this type of money was spent in California elections over the last couple of years and who spent it. And of the whopping $88 million spent, half the money came from just 10 groups. And who those groups are is a little surprising. Topping the list, in first place, Two individuals, a father and daughter, who together spent about $8 million trying to get Democrat Phil Angelides elected governor in 2006. He lost, by the way. In second place, Alliance for a Better California, an organization of teachers, healthcare workers, labor unions, and firefighters. They spent almost $5 million. In third place, the Pachanga Band of the Luceno Indians, who plunked down $4 million. In fact, in California, corporate groups occupy only two of the top 10 slots meaning of the roughly $42 million the top 10 groups spent, $35 million of it came from labor unions, Indian tribes, teachers, and prison guards. Now, the authors of this report would no doubt be dismayed to see their work used by people like Eugene Volokh as justification for backing off of campaign finance legislation. After all, the report is quite strong in its urging that something be done about the flood of money into the political process. And it's weird, everyone I talked to agreed this is a problem. Special interest money plays too big a role in our government. They disagreed about the solutions, but they all thought something should be done. The Citizens United case will probably mean more money flowing into the system. But let's be honest, and I think my dad would agree, things were pretty bad already. I have to tell you something, Alex. <laughs> I think I, I do think it got a little boring there in the middle. But it got boring after they cut you off. It was really right. interesting right before they cut you off, and then there was like a minute and a half of a lot of information all at once that was, I have to say, a little bit boring. I'm sorry to tell you. Oh, I'm sorry, Dad. It did get interesting, though. <laughs> at the end, then, you have the two guys who have these two different takes on the same thing. That that starts to get interesting again. And then also, like, the fact that there are half the states that are operating like this. Mm-hmm. It, was good at the, it was good at the end. You just had a little slow spot in the middle there. Yeah, yeah. It's hard. It's hard to... It's hard to um, it's a lot of really like abstract legal concepts that you're working with here, and like, and then then like the law made all these weird decisions. Like the more you get into it, there's all these weird distinctions between like a contribution to a candidate versus a ad an ad on be on behalf of a candidate. And like the law had made a really rigid distinction between buying an ad for a candidate versus giving a, giving money to a candidate. It, but that getting into that was a whole thing, and then. This is why they like economics and not law. Exactly. Okay, so I think this show, Alex, is dedicated to your father. His (laughs) name is? What's his name? Richard Bloomberg. Mr. Bloomberg. Mr. Richard Bloomberg. Yes. 
Um, and you can find us online at npr.org slash money. You can email us what you think of Alex's story, what you think of his dad's ideas, what you would like us to cover at planetmoney at npr.org. I'm Hannah Jaffe-Walt. And I'm Alex Bloomberg, Richard Bloomberg's son. Thank you for listening. <laughs> 